since we've already invested some time in our videos, this will be a shorter sermon. And uh, as my students know, I'm, I never go over time on any of my lessons ever. So we'll be A-OK -okay with the time. And I want us just to begin by uh, reciting uh, by the Lord's Prayer, by praying with the words that uh, our Lord and Savior uh, gave to us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Excellent. That's, that's good that you added the addendum. So the, the, Matthew, Matthew doesn't, doesn't do that. That's why I stopped. But that's good. <laughs> um, so I've, uh, I've broken up the sermon today into, uh, into three sections. And if you look on, on your bulletins, the first of which is entitled The Joy of Youth. The Joy of Youth. And that's a topic. Uh, youthfulness is, of course, a topic in... Uh, modern culture, and of course, sometimes the, the appeals uh, that uh, modern culture makes are a little bit more superficial, uh, but we're looking at the, the richest and deepest and most eternal sense in which we can think of that term. Um, and we begin by looking at uh, 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 4, verses 12, where Paul, now Paul is now preparing Timothy, so this is one of the three pastoral letters of the New Testament where Paul is writing specifically to an individual, not a church at large. He's preparing Timothy for leadership of the church at Ephesus, and he writes, Let no one look down on you because you are young, or as some translations have it, despise you for your youth. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, you see, some people look at this passage and they assume that because Paul says Timothy's young, that he's in the ballpark of maybe 20 years old or something like that, when in actuality, he would have had to have been at least in his early 30s. So Paul likely met Timothy on his first missionary journey in which he went through the city of Lystra, which is in modern-day southern Turkey, and that's where Timothy was from. And uh, 1 Timothy is written 15 years after that. So, uh, in all likelihood, Timothy was probably a teenager when uh, Paul ran across him then, and now 15 years later, getting ready to lead a church in his early 30s. And the importance of this observation is that we don't get a wrong impression of God's timeline and allow that to produce a false expectation in our minds. You see, Timothy was young. He was young for a pastor of a church. If we look at Timothy thinking he's 20 and already in a position to be not only leading a church, but also a church which was uh, in need of structure and order and in need of doctrinal correction, uh, we'll run the risk of imposing a burden on our youth, which uh, should never be there. But what I believe is worth focusing on and rejoicing in is that the work started those 15 years earlier. The work that set the stage for Timothy at a relatively young age to be in such a, a commanding leadership position started those 15 years earlier, when Timothy was, again, very likely in mid to late teens. It was God, working through Paul, took this gifted young man and began to mold him when he was, in our terms, a high schooler. 
And it was because Timothy embraced the call of God at that young age that he was able to realize so much of his potential in leading an entire church in his early 30s. You see, in Timothy, we're given the picture of the power and potential of youth that is properly guided. I will repeat that. We're given a picture of the power and potential of youth that is properly guided. And the encouragement would have been much the same when Paul first ran across Timothy. You can imagine Paul saying, look, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're a teenager. Don't let people despise you because you're a teenager. Be an example, Timothy. Love God. Let Him set the limits. And through you, He will do great things. Now, another passage that relates to the vibrancy of youth is found in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 through 31. Now, it's Isaiah here who's speaking about God, says, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint." Now, sometimes people look at this passage and think that it almost suggests a diminished view of, of youth, because after all, the passage goes out of its way to say, well, even the young people have their mistakes and they fall too. But the verse actually pays the youth a great compliment, because imagine if I were to say, for the basketball fans among us, that even, even Steph Curry misses a three-point shot every now and again. It's rare, but it happens. Or if we've watched the Olympic Games recently, the, uh, the races, you know, you, if I were to say, even Usain Bolt, even Usain Bolt, uh, you know, trips up sometimes and has a bad race in the 100 or 200 meters. Am I saying by that that, am I denigrating them? Am I, am I bringing them down? Or am I using the fact that they are excellent athletes, that they are, they are the exemplary cases in athletics and sportsmanship in order to make a point, in order to show you that even the very best trip up sometimes. See, so that's precisely what Isaiah is doing with this passage. He's paying the youth a high compliment. He holds up young people as an example of the most active and spirited people in society. And he says that even they sometimes need the grace of God. And if they embrace that grace, there's almost nothing which will fall beyond their reach. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And as a former runner myself, um, that particular part of the passage comes across pretty, pretty powerfully. It strikes home. And I think for anyone who is a runner or, or who, who has uh, been a runner, uh, you'll know the feeling of that thrill of the wind on your face and of, of your legs just flying beneath you. And even though it's often in the context of competition, a real runner knows that pleasure that comes just from the activity itself. Now, who here has seen the movie Chariots of Fire? Okay, good. A solid, a solid number. For those who haven't seen it, uh, it recalls the, um, the struggles of the 1924 British Olympic running team in the 1924 uh, Olympics, which were held at Paris. Um, and this team had stellar athletes, athletes that were just the top, top tier. And it goes through their various struggles and challenges as they compete. And one of those competitors was Eric Little, who was, who was Scottish, and he was a, uh, a minister and also a, later a missionary. And he kind of created a bit of a, of a uh, 
uh, an event, uh, a bit of a, um, something that uh, was not expected when he did not run because one of his races were held on a Sunday. He thought that uh, that was God's day, and if it was a question between running and God, that God had to come first. And so he didn't run in one of his events because it was on a Sunday. And um, he also was considering whether he should go on the races at all or he should do it, begin his missionary work in China. And there's this powerful scene in the movie where he's speaking to his wife, and he's explaining to her his decision to run in the races, because he did run in, in some of the races um, in, instead of, of leaving prematurely. So he tells her, he says, he says, you've got to understand, you've got to understand, I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. You see, we were meant to feel joy and energy in our youth because that brings God pleasure. It brings him pleasure, and to ignore it is to lose out on a part of who God made us to be. And so for those of us who have a hard time picturing that or maybe haven't seen the movie and uh, the movie does it a lot better than I do. Consider this, and I think this is a situation which we all have felt or experienced in our lives. Um, this actually happened just a couple weeks ago after the Saturday service. So normally on the services, I'm downstairs teaching the junior hires. And after the service, we get out, and there's some of the even younger students that are milling around. And I'm not sure what came over me or why I decided to do it, but I looked down at one of the little girls, and I think it was Aurora, and uh, I said, I asked her, I said, do you want to fly? Do you want to fly? And of course, especially when you're really little, it's, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, and so I just, I just I picked her up and I spun her around. I lifted her up as high as I could and I spun her around. And, and you should have seen just the joy and, and the, the bright eyes on that face. And, and it, that was it. You didn't need to add anything else on top of that. that that's, that's like <laughs> the perfect experience. And of course, as soon as I set her down, what does every child uh, say as soon as that, that's done? Do it again, do it again, do it again. And uh, I, to add, to compound that, I turn to my left, and then there's now three more uh, <laughs> students that are, that are waiting. And uh, so after about 10 minutes, and I've, I've been doing it straight for 10 minutes, I've started to feel a little, little dizzy, and I'm just kind of praying for God receive me now if this is what I need to do because I'm not going to stop because it's so great. It's so wonderful to, to see that and kind of just vicariously participate in that s simple joy that can rejoice at that kind of thing. And the funny thing is, too, is that actually happened when I was on a missions uh, trip years ago to, uh, in Lima, Lima, Peru. And uh, I spoke some Spanish, but, but uh, not a lot. And we were helping out with the church there, and this church is very impoverished, and they didn't have much by way of facilities, so all the students were just outside in a big lot, and that's what they had to do to, pl to play around in. And um, I, I remember doing the same thing. I thought, that's, I can speak only so much Spanish, but that's kind of a universal language for, for children. So I did that, and there was a lot more children. There was about a line of like 25 people, like Disneyland style, and it was about 100 degrees as well. So I was, I was really feeling it then, but it was, it was, again, that joy, that kind of universal joy. And I know we've all felt it. But how long has it been since, since we've felt it? See, I, I think, I think we, we lose that perspective. We lose that perspective as we, as we grow older. And we'll return to that. So I want us to keep that, remember, that memory in our minds. 
We've seen the joy that comes from youthfulness. But the Bible is complex and subtle, and it can't be reduced to some kind of simplistic just nostalgia for days gone by or an imperative to remain in the mental, emotional, and spiritual state of our youth. We have to grow up. And we see, therefore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul writes, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. See, likewise, David records in Psalm 25, verse 7, his passionate desire for God not to hold his youth against him. He writes, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgression. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So there's a very real sense in which we as Christians must pass out of our youth and into the maturity of adulthood. We cannot stay as children in our hearts and minds. To do so would be to prevent ourselves from flourishing and also actually to cement ourselves into uh, patterns of sin and ignorance which are particular to a youthful soul. And in this process of growth, which is always something of a struggle, it's a natural part of the way in which we've been designed by God. See, our youthful stage of life is a bit like uh, a piece of gold ore that's been found in nature. It's, it's so beautiful and filled with so much potential when you find it, but there's always also impurities in the metal. Whenever you find that in nature, you'll always find some impurities. The bad is inevitably bundled up with the good, and the metal cannot be used until the impurities are removed. And the impurities can only be removed by an intense and transformative process. The metal has to be liquidated and melted down so that all those impurities can be removed. Just as we have to let God take the comfortable structure and stability our youthful minds impose on our lives and allow those to be reformed by our refiner's fire to sift out the sin that has bound itself up in that picture. We have to give up the shape we thought our lives should have. And once this occurs, that gold can be used for all variety of wonderful purposes. Now, of course, if we were dealing just with worldly wisdom, we might stop there. It might be intuitive enough to say, okay, there is joy and there's beauty in youth, okay. Uh, but Granted, we all have to move beyond that, and we have to come to terms with life as adults. We have to accept maturity and happiness on those terms. But the Word of God doesn't stop there. And in fact, the fullness of God's presence on earth, Jesus Christ, Himself gives us the final resolution to that journey, which characteristic of the teachings of Jesus is always somewhat paradoxical. In Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, it is written, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Of course, kind of gone a bit of an ego trip, probably hoping they might be listed among those. And calling him to a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say unto you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not you might not, not there's a 50-50 chance, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, so when, after all is said and done, in a very mysterious way, after leaving our childhood behind, we've got to return to it. We've got to return to it. But not as a regression. You see, you can't go back to 
youth the way you came out of it. That would mean undoing the growth that God Himself has given us. So we are meant to return to it by a different route, to recover something about our youth that we all end up losing during our growth and refinement. So what is it? What are we meant to remember that we have forgotten as adults? Now, I imagine there are many things, and most of which I still struggle to know. But as we prepare to close, if I could venture to share with you just a piece of it, I'd say it's the ability to appreciate every detail of life for its own sake, for its own sake, not what it can be used in our own plans to do, not, not how we can turn it to our advantage, for its own sake, to approach the common realities we often take for granted with a renewed sense of wonder. Because you see, wonder is a state that takes you outside yourself, which is necessary for drawing closer to God. You can't get close to God if you're stuck within yourself. And enjoying creation for its own sake is a way of accepting the world as God's gift. You move outside yourself, outside the limitations of your own limited picture, and you can accept everything as a gift, not just the way it is, not just something to get through. It's a gift, all of it. So you take something as simple as a door, for, for example. Every, any given day, we pass through probably dozens of doors. As an adult, you're only really aware of the door as probably an obstacle. You know, it's something in between A and B. I've got to open it, I've got to close it, now I'm getting there. Or maybe you're kind of vaguely aware that it serves a function like it keeps the cold out or something like that too. But who remembers being a child or, or has seen children who will go up to a door and they'll just look at, at, at the doorknob or the latch and they'll just move it around or they'll admire its shape and they're just captivated completely by it? Or who's seen a child just take the door and then just swing it open and closed and open and closed on its hinges? It just seems like dozens of times. And they're just admiring the way it swings on its hinges and, the, and just the simple fact that something like that could possibly exist. See, we become dull and desensitized to it. We, we lose, again, that perspective. We learn to look at life through the lens of economics. How much can I make off of that thing? Or through the lens of busyness. Oh, I, I just don't have time for that. Or even through the lens of a false maturity. Oh, well, that, that stuff's that's not important. That's not important anymore. That's not, that's not mature. But it is. It is. And unless we can learn to see life that way again, Christ tells us we will have no part in his kingdom. Because being a part of his kingdom means becoming closer to God. And perhaps God is more youthful than we give him credit for. So as G.K. Chesterton understood it like this, he wrote that a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. I can vouch for that. <laughs> for grown-up people are not strong enough to rejoice in monotony, doing the same thing over again. But perhaps God is strong enough to rejoice in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately. 
but that he's never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. So as we prepare ourselves for communion, I want us to dwell for a moment on the fact that when God himself entered into the world, he chose to do so as a little child. He didn't skip over the days of his youth. He didn't fast forward into his adulthood. He didn't just appear as an adult. The Bible actually tells us in the book of Luke that as a boy, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. He, he grew. He had to grow. And even, I think, perhaps more relatable for some of us than, than even that part, it also tells us that his mother treasured these things, as any mother would, treasured these things in her heart. That was the experience. Jesus went through every stage of our growth so that no part of us might be withheld from his redeeming love. In Psalm 139, David asks, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? We can say the same thing of Jesus. If I go to my youth, you are there. If I go to my adulthood, you also are there. So as we commemorate the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf, know that it is a fully human sacrifice. It's not just that Jesus was a human being, but that he lived a normal human life. He passed through being born, being a baby, being a toddler, being a child, being a teenager, being a young man, being an adult. So when we take the bread and the cup, let us treasure the intimacy of that reality as Mary treasured it. God can be not only our Savior, but also our friend because he chose to share fully in our human experience. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for the tremendous mystery and the gift of your Son, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of wonder. And we know that you created us for wonder that through your creation we'd be drawn to you, God. We pray that we could receive that with youthful eyes, that you would renew our spirits, that we would be able to look out into the world and see through the day-to-day and to see down to the beautiful, simple reality of its, its own existence and the marvel that that is. And Lord, perhaps there are some of us now, perhaps all of us in some way, have grown older than you designed for us, Lord, in our spirits. We've grown too old and our senses have become too dulled to these beautiful realities, God. We pray that you would make us new, you would make us young again, as the psalm says, as your word promises, God. We pray for that in all of our our hearts and our souls. And again, we thank you for the gift of your son who came into the world and who went through every part of our life so that no part of our life might be without resource in him. And Lord, we lift this up in your name. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.